Hi, and welcome to the ILO's Global Business Network on Forced Labor podcast. We are the Global Business Network bringing together businesses of all sizes and sectors and their representative organizations from around the globe to end forced labor. I am Mariska van der Linde, a consultant working with the network. Our third podcast series is all about inspiring and equipping small and medium-sized enterprises, or SMEs for short, to join the fight against forced labor. In case you missed it, our first podcast was an introduction to forced labor for SMEs, including how to spot it. In this second episode, we will hear from SMEs leading the way. In 2021, we ran, for the first time, an award to recognize those SMEs breaking new ground to fight forced labor. And we had some excellent submissions. Three very different SMEs who submitted entries shared their stories with nearly 300 people at an event at the beginning of 2022. We heard from Niels von den Boeke, Chief Financial Officer at the RT Group, which has set up a child labor-free zone in India. We also heard from James Sinclair, Head of Consulting at FSI Worldwide, an ethical recruitment company. And last, but definitely not least, we heard from Robert Ogadia, owner and founder of Wimrop Bees Company Limited, which has trained 15,000 beekeepers in Uganda to date with plans for more. We asked the SMEs a bunch of questions. What was the motivation behind your company's action on forced labor? I mean, why did you decide to act? And what did the company do concretely? What actions did you take? What resources and support made a real difference? And what challenges did your company face? What obstacles did it have to overcome, specifically as an SME? And what do you think other players, such as governments, other businesses, NGOs and more, could do to help get more SMEs involved in the fight against forced labor? Let's listen to the highlights of their answers, starting with Niels from the Arctic Group. Thank you, everybody, for uh, this opportunity to tell uh, our story, uh, the story of Arte. Uh, first of all, I'm CFO uh, of Arte. Uh, and uh, instead of that, uh, and comparing with that, I'm also a founder, initiative namer, and chairman of the Arte Responsible Stone Foundation. Um, first, I would like to tell you a little bit more uh, about Arte. Uh, Arte is a, is a SME, is a company uh, based in Helmond, uh, the south of the Netherlands. And we work uh, with about 100 people, about 70 uh, FTEs, uh, full-time employees, uh, to producing kitchen tops, kitchen tops from stone uh, to the Dutch uh, business, uh, business to business. So the Dutch country is our uh, our market, and that's where we supply every week about 250 till 300 kitchen uh, tops. Now we try to do that then as, as a uh, in a sustainable way, as sustainable as possible. And uh, for us, uh, our real journey started in 2010. Uh, in 2010, um, we had to decide from, okay, uh, what is our focus and what is the impact we want to make? And in, uh, in that time, uh, we decided uh, to travel um, to the source uh, of our business and the source of our business uh, is India. Uh, India is, is the country where the most of the natural stone is coming from, we are, we are sourcing. And uh, before 2010, and we are existing 25 years, we source our material uh, from wholesales in Italy, um, where it was brought from India. But from 2010, uh, I visited myself India for the first time. And that was for us the first confrontation, with especially as child labor. Um, the granite is coming from, from mountains and quarries and is brought uh, uh, in blocks uh, to a factory, and that factory is cut into slabs. And from that slabs, they are departed uh, to the Netherlands, where we, in Helmond, make it to, to kitchen tops. Um, but when you visit um, a quarry, uh, it's, it's uh, in the inlands of India, 
And in that queries, I saw at the sides of that queries uh, some complete families, uh, mother, father, grandfather, grandmother, and also children uh, working uh, underneath with small stones um, to earn some money, uh, to make some 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 jewelries to sell um, and to make some money to so they can buy food. Um, for us as art, that was that was the, the the beginning of that is something which we didn't know ourselves. Uh, we were only focusing on our own business and did not know everything what was happening in our query. But from that on, uh, sustainability was uh, important for us. And we started to make sure we did know where our material was from. Uh, we want to be transparent. So we focused us on, on, on suppliers. We did find uh, search for suppliers, suppliers who want to be open with us, who give us the access to all their queries so we could know uh, what happens and what is possible. Uh, and those suppliers, uh, which we, we uh, found, um, we asked them also to be open uh, about their labor circumstances, uh, about their salaries, about their health and safety protocols, about their child labor uh, approach, uh, things like that. What was quite new for us, uh, which we have seen uh, in India by our own eyes, and we would like to discuss in a dialogue with uh, with our suppliers. So after we we did uh, find those suppliers, and we uh, found also. Uh, first of all, a UK company that was uh, TFT, the Forest Trust, uh, to help us to address all those kind of votes. So when we did find the suppliers after that, uh, we asked TFT to check uh, uh, at our suppliers all the circumstances uh, comparing uh, uh, with the guidelines we want to have, what we want to, to follow, also with the ILO uh, guidelines. Uh, so our supplier had to open his business also for an independent company, an NGO uh, as TFT, and uh, later on nowadays certifics from from Germany, and they check uh, in the queries in India for us announced and unannounced uh, what the circumstances are, and. That was step number one. But every time I visited India, and I do that once or twice a year, I visit also a query. And when I visit that queries, I still see, not in that queries, but around that areas, um, still children working uh, uh, in an agriculture sector and not going to school. And uh, we did get uh, in contact with some NGOs. And I learned in that way from if I really want to, to change something, uh, we have to change the mentality. And if you want to change the mentality, you have to, to, to select a certain regio, a small regio, which you can have impact, especially as an SME, uh, to make uh, the difference. And that's, the, that's the, when we, we've chosen not only to, to base us on a supply chain approach, but to focus us on an area-based approach. And that means that we are not only focusing on our supplier, but also focusing on the area around our supplier and all the people, and also especially the children living in that area, and also the children of the employers of our uh, supplier, uh, to make sure that we can change something uh, for them. And we decided at that time uh, to create child labor-free zones. Um, and later, she will also give you more information. Uh, but um, that's our, our biggest step, we are creating a child labor-free zone around the area in which our supplier is and which we source our material. That's a quick overview of our, our journey. The main challenges as an SME is leverage. Uh, we do not only do 1% of the turnover of the supplier, uh, we buy granite. Uh, so that's the biggest challenge. The leverage is very small. And you have to make sure you build up a relationship you have to make sure you have a long-time relationship and you understand each other also in, in, in cultural and distance matters, but you have to, to 
be in a dialogue and make sure uh, you are doing it uh, together. Uh, all those kinds of things we see here that are challenges, I think, for most people are not, not quite shocking or quite new. Um, for us, uh, we are finding our way um, to face all those kind of challenges. Sometimes uh, the biggest uh, challenge is time. Um, of course, we want to go faster. We want to have changed everything uh, tomorrow. But sometimes you will make one step in front and two back. And the other way, other week, you make two in front and one back. Uh, at the end, you have to go uh, to go on. And, and that's something we are, um, are still doing. And we do that, uh, we do that uh, actually in, in, in two days. What we have learned so far uh, and what we've learned and to make sure that our, uh, our steps, which we've set so far, are still there and still ready to improve more and more um, is that we are engaged to cooperate. We cooperate with more and more companies, NGOs, people, uh, labor associations, more and more um, organizations are joining our uh, project. You see, for, for us, it's, it's, it's cooperation and share knowledge that are the two main important reasons for us uh, to make sure that we are uh, we are fighting forced labor, especially uh, child labor in our um, in our case, um, we cooperate in our program in our creating child labor free zone. We cooperate with with, with a few NGOs as well in India as in is um, in the Netherlands and the Netherlands is Ariza, uh, and they help us um, with all the challenges we have because uh, as a small and medium enterprise. Um, to be honest, we don't have all the knowledge uh, what is happening and what's allowed uh, uh, as well in India and uh, all over the world. Uh, so they help us to understand what the challenges are and how to face them. And we, um, what we did, uh, we call this our after right to education project. What we did, we try to give education to all the children in the project area, uh, which we have uh, set up in, in India. It's in Balakrava, uh, India. Uh, we started there in 2016. Uh, so it took six years before I had uh, the possibility to set up a, a project and an area-based approach. And what we first did was to set up a, a baseline. And then in the baseline, we had uh, done in eight villages. And in eight villages, there were living 12,000 people, 2,200 children. And 253 children are not going to school. They were not registered even. And what we wanted to do is by giving education to all those kind of children uh, to make sure that they have the opportunity and the chance for a better future, as well as not going uh, to, to, to forced or child labor, um, but really learning. Yes. Um, that was for us creating a child labor, uh, not only by, uh, not by building schools, but just to, to change the mentality of the people, because in our opinion, and also the opinion of the NGO, uh, which we uh, are working with together, um, that's the only thing, uh, the only way of really making a change. Change the mentality, not by material uh, buildings, but change the mentality and make sure that the social impact is so big that it's normal for everybody to go to school, that the education is at a certain level. Um, and that's that's the project we started now. Before Corona, because Corona is also a challenge uh, for us, we did have we have to set some steps back. But before Corona, um, we were from the 253 children, already 16 children did go to school, uh, and the most important, all the new four-year-old children were enrolled. Uh, and that was in the past. That was was as far not not uh, the idea. Very few children were enrolled in school when they were four years. 
by setting up the dialogue, by setting up the dialogue with our supplier, with NGO in India, uh, and with us. Um, um, yeah, we are we have we have mainstreamed many children to school, and it's more normal now uh, that children go to school. So that's the mentality change uh, we already uh, realized. And if you look to the to the current situation now, because we started in 2016, but if you look to the current situation, um, the Indian government, the local government, asked us to to uh, bring in four extra villages in that same area, in the same project area, to our projects. And by uh, implementing four villages more, um, yeah, that gives also an idea of the success of our project. Uh, also, the Indian government, which is not uh, always very strict. Um, yeah, sees the benefit and also success of this uh, of this project. Um, we see now, although that uh, in, in COVID, you see that uh, schools were open and closed. Um, but now, when they were closed, we work with, with with mobilizers, and mobilizers are people who are working for us in that area. And we have at the moment uh, six mobilizers. They visit the schools every day, and because we have done a baseline, we know exactly. Uh, where children live and where their parents live. So when a uh, mobilizer does visit a school in the morning and he sees that a certain child is not on school, he visits the parents, asks the parents from where are, is your uh, son or daughter and try to make sure that they are going to school and try to convince them why school is important and in that way change the mentality. And even in COVID, we, um, we were successful that when schools were closed, the mobilizers, uh, could help the children with their homework so that still the lessons, uh, the school education was given and children can, can develop. Um, that for us is, that's, that's for us is very uh, important. And as we are in the stone business, um, in this way, we can, can, can be, our stone can make a difference. Every stone uh, uh, we can build together can make diff the difference. And as a me, we are proud that we can uh, do together with uh, many, many people, uh, NGO in India and, and, and our supply in India, but also NGO in uh, in Holland. Uh, we can do this project and we can see it's, it's successful. Uh, we don't believe in bringing money to India and building a school and toilets. No, we uh, believe in, in change the mentality and, and make sure um, yeah, that people really, children have the rights on a better future and also the chance on a better future. Uh, and they are uh, not forced to labor um, and to keep away from, from child labor. We brought back 60 children uh, to school that are only children, uh, 60 children, uh, but still that's the first step. And I'm sure that we will make, uh, uh, we make that more after, uh, after COVID now. Um, and we really did create some awareness, uh, not only in India, but also in Holland, in our uh, sector and in the natural stone sector. Um, we are one bigger company, uh, but you can see now that everybody is now aware from, oh, there are some challenges uh, in our supply chain. What can we do uh, about it? Uh, and, and we have to do something about it. First of all, we have to be transparent and we have to cooperate uh, to make sure, and we have to, for, to, to, to set up a dialogue to make sure that we can avoid all those kinds of, of, of um, challenges we are facing uh, now. And um, one of the last points I would like to address is, is uh, what we've also learned. We started with, with, with forced labor and child labor, but child marriage, uh, which is forbidden. And um, when you've seen it yourself, um, you understand it better and you can look away. But we, what we try is to also to address this. 
this and we uh, try to to address it and to solve it to make sure um, that children are not married and uh, that they have a normal childhood and can learn by education um, as said we expanded to to 12 fishes, 12 fishes and um, now what we're trying to do is back to the business and to make sure that we're also going to give uh, trainings of health and safety um, in the quarries which are situated in our project area. And that is in a very, very short notice, a little bit more than 10 minutes, uh, my story, the story of Arte and how we as a as a me uh, can do something against especially child labor uh, in India, in our supply chain, and, and that we have some impacts. Um, and I think every company and every SME company can do this um, if you are really motivated and really know what's happening in your supply chain. What a fantastic example of an SME making a difference. Because of the Archie Group, 60 children are back in school. Immigrant children can now go to daycare. Education quality overall has improved, including through the introduction of English lessons. And even better, the child labor free zone grew from eight to 12 villages following initial success and on the request of the government. To summarize, Neil's top tips for other SMEs are one, really understand how your business impacts and can impact its sourcing communities. Two, visit your suppliers. Three, work with NGOs to obtain the expertise you need to make a difference. Let's move on to our second SME now, FSI Worldwide, a recruitment agency, and hear from James Sinclair on how this business has made fair recruitment a reality and is protecting migrant workers from forced labor. So a few things I've been asked to address. Uh, the first one is to talk about the journey that FSI has been on to date. Um, and we started our journey in 2006. Uh, and FSI is essentially an ethical recruitment company which is dedicated to the protection and empowerment of migrant workers. That's, that's the core element of what, of what FSI does. Um, and we started this journey because my colleagues, I, I was a law, I'd been practicing law in a, a nice sort of comfy global north position. Most of my, my colleagues at FSI had been in the army. They'd been army officers. And a lot of them had been working uh, with the, the Gurkha community in Nepal. And they had seen a lot of those, uh, the guys who left the army, uh, ex-Gurkhas, being um, recruited for uh, private security work into Iraq and Afghanistan and seeing a lot of, um, a lot of abuse and a lot of exploitation happening. That, that was something we felt that we wanted to fix. So um, perhaps rather naively, because we thought we could fix it, we, we went and, and set up an ethical recruitment company uh, because we felt that once the, the governments around the world and the big corporations could see and understand what was happening in relation to um, unfair and unfree uh, employment and, and particularly issues around forced and bonded labor. They would want uh, a cleaner ethical alternative, which we, we wanted to provide. So uh, it, it was very much a, a focused effort to begin with. A, 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 a company set up in Nepal to provide ethical recruitment services. But quite quickly, we realized that the problem we were looking to address was significantly more complex than we had given credit for. So we had to start to think about how to develop strategies to work in what was a very challenging environment in terms of corruption and exploitation. Um, and, and, and so 
that set us thinking about how we can embed responsible business practices, not just in our business, but in the businesses of our clients and, and, and the people we were talking to. And so we started on what then became a sort of twin track approach, which was in some ways problematic of trying to both create the market for ethical recruitment and also sell into that market. And, and that was a really challenging thing to do because uh, some of the people we were working with felt that we should be focused either on one or the other. So we should either be an NGO and an advocacy organization, or we should be a practical ethical recruitment company, and we shouldn't try and be both. But we actually felt that it was really important to do both because um, the lessons that we were learning from doing the recruitment on the ground were really important in terms of helping uh, our peers in the, in, the, in the international community understand the challenges that they needed to face. So um, from, from, from that position, over the last 15 or 16 years, we've recruited several thousand people through our, our networks. Um, and those are the people who have been given um, uh, secure, safe, you know, well-paid employment. They've been looked after in a way that perhaps they might not have been otherwise. And that's, that gives us a sense of, of pride. Um, uh, and, and we're looking to build that core business. But the, the part of the business I run is the consulting and advisory arm, which is trying to take the lessons from that recruitment process and apply them more generally. And so we, we, we have advised various governments and uh, NGOs and, and, and corporates around responsible business practices, because we think it's really important, as Niels was saying, to bring these practices into the core business. Uh, of, of international commerce rather than it being a nice to have or an add-on. And of course, we're seeing the development of the law um, in Europe and elsewhere in quite a dramatic way now to try to, to support and push responsible business practices. So, so that, that's also quite gratifying to see. Um, so, I mean, just to wrap up that section, essentially, we, we think that we got to a point now where we have a sort of combination of of grassroots experience, but also sort of higher level policy and, and, and legal and commercial experience to be able to help contribute somewhat to this debate. The second, second question I'm asked to address is, is about the key actions, some of the things that, uh, that we feel that we did right and wrong. Um, I would say the first one is we had a, we had a clear, measurable and deliverable um, strategy to begin with. It didn't stay that way for very long, but we had we had a very particular thing that we wanted to achieve. And that actually really helped us to sort of penetrate the initial marketplace and then build out from there. And, and I see a, a lot of um, a lot of people trying to set up you know, purpose driven organizations or, or ethically driven organizations who are perhaps trying to solve too many problems at once. And, and I think a really key lesson that we learned was, you know, if you start in a very targeted way, you can, you can build out from there. A second uh, thing that we learned was there's no shortcut to investment in good people, good procedures, and having a ground game. I mean, talking from an ethical recruitment perspective, there, there, are, there is no way that you can do this without investing serious amounts of money and people into, your, in, into these systems. Um, one of the things that a lot of people do in this space is they, they engage with third-party agents or, or, or others. And, and in our experience, as soon as you do that, you, end, you, you bring in um, risk and uncertainty in the organization. So FSI is a fully vertically integrated um, organization, which, which was sort of grown from the ground up 
Uh, and we have a sort of three-part, um, uh, you know, invest, uh, um, uh, sorry, insist, invest, and inspect being the sort of three core elements of, of what we do um, when it comes to, to making sure that our, um, our procedures are up to scratch. Um, the, the third thing is, is, is listening, listening really hard to the voices of migrant workers, uh, particularly, uh, also listening to our clients and to, to, to governments uh, and, and sort of local law enforcement and others so that we can hear the perspectives of everybody involved because everyone um, has a part to play in this and everyone has got challenges. There's no point in trying to force companies down a particular route uh, without understanding the challenges that they face as well because you know, we ultimately have to find, find joint solutions to this. Uh, and that, I guess, is a reminder that this is this problem is an ecosystem problem. It's, it, there are no silver bullets. It, you know, we all need to make sure that we're collaborating and learning together and that we're bringing best practice to bear. And of course, the law has a, has a key role to play in that. Uh, but business really does need to, to think more um, creatively and innovatively about how it can solve some of these problems. So that would be my, my sort of key action takeaway. Uh, third question about resources and support. So the sorts of um, you know, investments that we make, and frankly, there are three principal ones, money, people, and contacts. Um, there, there's, there's no getting away from it. If you're going to try to build a, a, an ethical recruitment company in, a, in an environment which is deeply difficult and problematic, you're going to need to have resources. Um, you know, we've invested a lot of money into our own networks over the years, uh, and you know, we haven't taken dividends out of the business. Everything's been reinvested to make sure that our grassroots recruitment centers are, are, are properly staffed and funded. And that, that you know, that frontline, that first handshake with a, with a migrant worker is absolutely critical. And we have to make sure that the, the journey that, that migrant workers go on uh, is protected from the very start all the way through their, their, their journey. Um, people, you know, making sure that you invest in the right people, uh, you empower your teams, you make sure that your teams have, have all got, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, all, it's all locally driven. So uh, you know, we, we need to make sure that we're not sitting here um, in a sort of global north perspective dictating terms. Of course, we, you know, we have something to say about the core uh, ethics of the business and, and the code of conduct. But then we want to make sure that our local teams are empowered to deliver uh, what they can. Um, and then the contacts, you know, ultimately, that's about building a network of people that you can collaborate with effectively, whether it be, you know, with the ILO, with whom we've had a good relationship for many years, um, various you know, national governments um, and, and, and corporations of all sizes from, from um, multinational enterprises down to SMEs. You know, finding ways of, of, of collaborating and learning across the pieces is really important. The fourth thing is around um, particular challenges that SMEs uh, face in this space. And, and, and Nils um, touched on some of these as well, and, and I think did a really good job on that. Um, you know, ultimately, one of the problems that we have as, as the SME communities, we don't have strength individually to move the needle. Um, I mean, personally, I, I think that sometimes the strength that multinational enterprises have to move the needle is often overstated. But you know, as a small, uh, small uh, SME, you know, it, it's really tough to get to get leverage in, in, a, in, a, in a new location. Um, and that can be particularly difficult if you're coming up against corrupt officials or um, you know, clients who just don't want to change their business model away from something that they've been very used to. Um, and let's be frank, you know, one of the big problems is, is with companies not wanting to pay for recruitment. 
Uh, and so obviously you know, within the sort of more highly regulated jurisdictions, we know that's a no-no. But when, as you come further and further down the chain, people just don't want to have to pay for recruitment services because they've never had to and they don't see the need. Um, and they don't really understand the sort of web of corruption and exploitation that that then is inviting. So um, it's quite difficult as an SME to move the needle on your own. That's why working with, with groups and others is very important. Uh, I guess related to that is, you know, we don't have the balance sheet to take on risky projects or necessarily absorb um, more risk than, than, uh, than is, you know, the, the kinds of risks that sometimes you're asked to take. Um, and I guess it, it, the third, the third uh, challenge has been uh, perhaps not being taken seriously enough by um, governments or, or companies. And, and, and by that, I mean that, you know, they will come and look at you and say, well, we'd like to work with you. We like your ethics. We like the way you, that you do things. But you don't have a big enough network or you don't have a deep enough, um, you know, a, 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 a good enough balance sheet to work with. You don't have enough insurance. And of course, that then becomes self-fulfilling. Um, and, and one of the things I'm going to talk about in a minute is I'd like to see uh, governments, particularly in terms of their procurement, taking more risk, putting, you know, channeling more money towards enterprising SMEs, particularly those that have got demonstrably good ethical track records. Um, but that, that's, that, that can be an issue uh, as well. So finally, just a few things that we would like to see. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things we've been calling for for years is a, is a, is a level playing field. And, and that's sort of an easy thing to say. But you know, the fact is that if you are a, a, an ethical recruiter in, a, in a, um, an industry which is dominated by unethical recruiters, um, competing is really difficult because basically you're being told to compete with people who are prepared to break the law. And there's no competing with that. You, you can't. I mean, so creating a level playing field is much more complex than just passing a law. It is it's, it's, it's enforcing that law properly. But it's also about making sure that when you're selecting your suppliers, you're being really careful to make sure that you're, you, know, you have got people with demonstrably ethical track records and you're not asking um, the impossible of ethical companies. Uh, because as I say, if, if, you're, if you're simply lining up um, a company that abides by the rules with a company that's not abiding by the rules and saying, well, one is cheaper than the other, well, QED, yeah. Um, secondly, you know, some of the things that we are starting to see around the mandatory human rights due diligence laws, much more sort of stringent approach being taken now, or starting to be taken now in relation to uh, the kind of legal structures, the governance structures for companies. That's obviously very, very promising. We'd like to see, see more of that. Um, uh, and, and, and then, you know, uh, practical, on practical level, you know, more, more pilot projects. You know, let, let's, let's, let's collaborate together. It's the ILO, the IOE, you know, other, other agencies, um, you know, corporations, governments. Let's, let's if, if we're not prepared to, to dive in to do big projects straight away because of the risk, at least let's invest in, you know, spotlight pilot projects where you can say, well, we're going to, we're going to do this particular thing in this particular area, we're going to monitor it, we're going to invite external academics to come and uh, come and look at it, and then we can see the sorts of impact that genuinely um, ethical business can have. So those are the sorts of things. And, you know, just generally moving quicker, moving smarter, whether it's on regulation or, or action, you know, let's, let's, be, let's, let's, let's be innovative, let's be, let's be quick. James has shared another fantastic story with us, which clearly shows the power of fair recruitment when it comes to preventing forced labor of migrant workers. 
In just 16 years, FSI has successfully created a market for fair recruitment and then sold into it. Fairly recruited and placed around 10,000 workers. The company has set up permanent village-level fair recruitment systems in Nepal, India, Kenya and Uganda. And what's more, FSI now advises governments and other businesses on fair recruitment. James's top tips for other SMEs are 1. Don't take shortcuts. 2. Invest in good people, policies and procedures. 3. Remember to insist, invest and inspect. Let's move on to our third SME, Wimbro Bees in Uganda. This SME has a strong focus on tackling the root causes of forced labor through training, job creation and income generation. Let's hear from Robert Okadia, founder and owner. I'm Mr. Robert uh, Okodia. I'm a founder and CEO of Wimro Bees Company Limited. I'm also a co-founder of a, a youth organization called Adyakaro Youth Development Initiative, which is a social enterprise. Uh, I'm also a co-founder for Awesome Young Mind, which is inspiring the next generation. I'm no stranger to adversity. Uh, often at age of two, and raised by my grandmother, along with other five siblings in Northern Uganda. The period of the time during my childhood, I live in a refugee camp due to low-resistant rebel insurgency in Northern Uganda, where I witnessed firsthand the effects of violence, poverty, HIV, and the general lack of education and skills on my community. As a social entrepreneur at heart, I saw the need, and more importantly, the opportunity to bring key skills to my community and the smallholder farmers in Uganda, particularly the women and the youth in my community. Uh, that's why I, I came up with my idea of uh, starting uh, enterprises uh, that can impact the life of uh, the youth and the young people. And, and currently we are working with 15,000 smallholder farmers uh, where we source our raw materials from them. Uh, we bring them to our factory. Uh, we add value to them. And uh, some of our products are we do organic honey. We do beeswax. Beeswax basically we do for export to Japan. Uh, we're also doing uh, propolis, immune boosting product. And uh, when COVID broke down, we also uh, invented another innovation which is immune boosting on uh, bee venom powder. So where we are making uh, a therapy from it. Uh, we, we also have some services we offer. We do technical beekeeping training. We do consultancy. And then also we, we are manufacturing beekeeping equipment uh, for production and then value addition. Uh, our business model is based on small older farmers uh, where we, we recruit them, uh, take them through the value chain, the training. We onboard them as producers of our raw material. But also we have another model, which is female apiary management program, where we, we get women from communities, women who are inspiring, who are leaders. We train them. Uh, then we take them through the, the, the value chain of honey production. They become producers. Actually, what happened is we start them up with about 10 beehives, modern hives, which gives them about 1 million shilling, about 
400 US dollar every three months. Uh, the hive is a, a property for Wimrop for a period of one year. After they paid back with honey, the beehive become their property after one year. Then they can be able to do business with us 100%. Then the other model we have is a commercial agent model where we, we encourage both youth, women, who are role model in the communities, who are leaders, business leaders, church leaders, political leaders. So we engage them to portray the love of our environment, the love of keeping bees to conserve biodiversity. So then they become our agent in the sense that they sell input on our behalf, they get commission, but also they bulk honey when it's production time, and then they get discount from the company for bulking honey for us. So we are very committed. And then uh, some of our markets, uh, supermarkets, pharmaceutical factories, um, cosmetic industries, hotels, and then individuals. And we're actually committed to changing the attitude of the young people. Uh, the young people in Uganda, they, 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 they most feel they're excited traveling. They want to go work abroad. They want to go work in the city. They want to sell their small land to buy a motorcycle, to do a border-border service, which is not sustainable. So we are committed to uh, empowering them, uh, uh, engaging them in uh, income generating activity like the beekeeping, so that they don't face uh, the risky journey, which potentially end to forced labor in where they, 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 they are going. So uh, basically, my, my journey started along that, and the big uh, picture behind this journey was for me to have a positive impact within my community, within my country, uh, looking at improving their livelihoods, and then also uh, creating decent income for, 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 for my community so that uh, they don't need to, to think of traveling for a greener pasture abroad or in the cities. Uh, then the other thing that uh, inspired me was I, uh, from my background, from a humble background, I wanted to create a social impact within my community, improving the livelihoods, job creation, and then decent jobs for the for the youth and women. And then uh, all this, I was thinking at how can I prevent forced labor? Because there's a lot of poverty around, which is a major cause of actually forced labor in Uganda. And some of my, my key actions are uh, uh, as a result of um, uh, addressing is one, we design and uh, document very clearly the labor statement, uh, which forces on fighting forced labor and otherwise related to forced labor. And then we are continuously assessing what improvement we need to make and bringing it up to date. And, and like our digital platform include labor statement placed predominantly on our website homepage so that uh, other people can go online and read and then also get information, get awareness, so they can support us as an SME to, to stop the forced labor. And then we appointed uh, a senior staff uh, and uh, its responsibility is, is to 
to see what is coming up, what is happening with the team, uh, uh, the, the, the production team, operation team, the raw material suppliers. So, and it's always a lot to see if there's any foul prey or false labor. He detect it, he bring it to the community and then it's addressed. Then um, resources, we, we were training the staff, we we're appointing the champions and mentors across the business value chain so they can educate, respond to problem and tackle workers' issues and concern. And then empowering the, the team to drive the change by ensuring they have resources, they need like people, time, information, and training to raise awareness and show why this matters, forced labor. And then uh, some of the challenges we have is uh, conducting supplier due diligence, which is very expensive. On that fall into IRIS categories like operation, raw material suppliers. And we have actually come up with a tool, a peer assessment tool, and then uh, minimum requirement audit. So these are some of the tools we are using to, con to con conduct our due diligence at, to, 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 to avoid false plays. And then this is actually expensive, but we're trying to uh, get up with partners like Few, Hilo, and then other government program here to see that we are able to uh, stop the first level. And our reflection as an SME, one is uh, we plan of creating more awareness among the SMEs on labor best practices, and then probably to benchmark progress and best practices so that we can uh, send it to other SMEs, they can learn, they can pick up from there too. The SME will lead by example, like for example, me and then other my team from other countries. Uh, we can inspire other SMEs by probably having a discussion, a queue one-on-one -on -one with them or a visit to their industry, to their factories to, and then we can talk about my success, how, how, I'm, how I manage to do it and then how they can also manage to do it. Then uh, the other thing is training uh, the CEOs of these SMEs and then the MDs, focusing on red flags to look out uh, for and um, what to do if there's a fall play suspected. And then also probably organizing conferences, trainings uh, to prevent and eradicate forced labor. Robert's story is truly inspiring. It really shows how the personal commitment of an entrepreneur can make a huge difference in a short space of time. Wimrock Bees was only set up in 2014. Since then, it has set up a network of 15,000 smallholder farmers, mostly women and young people, and all have been trained and supported by Wimbro Bees to become professional beekeepers. They earn a yearly income of around 1,600 US dollars, which is almost double the GDP per capita, which is estimated at 822 US dollars for Uganda. These people now see a future in Uganda and will not migrate abroad, risking forced labor. And there is more good news. Wimbro Bees plans to expand its network to 20,000 beekeepers by 2026. Looking beyond its own operations, the company also raises awareness of forced and child labor and what to do about it, among other Ugandan SMEs. So, what is Robert's top tip for other SMEs? In a nutshell, it's to help build an SME movement that fights forced labor. It's to make sure your business has a positive impact beyond the sphere of influence of its own operations and inspire other SMEs to act through discussion, worksite visits and sharing success stories. 
I hope you've enjoyed listening to the voices of our three SMEs. I think what's really interesting about their stories is that all three SMEs embrace responsible business conduct more widely. They haven't focused on one issue exclusively, such as forced labor, but they're also taking on child labor, child marriage, poverty, other root causes, and more. These businesses have a broad positive impact on the communities they work with, and those communities have been very much part of the process. We have come to the end of this episode, and I really hope that you are feeling inspired and motivated to take action on forced labor. If so, please share our podcast with anyone working for or with SMEs. On our website, you can find more information about our three inspiring SMEs, including case studies, short fact files, and a recording of the event at which they spoke. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to tune into the last episode of this series where we will give you an overview of some of the best free tools and resources available for SMEs on forced labor. This is a podcast from the International Labor Organization's Global Business Network on Forced Labor. Visit our website on flbusiness.network for more information and look out for our next episode. <laughs>